Nutty, welcome to Superstructure. We're back here for 2021. We got uh, co-host Max Sejo and Will Beeman, and I don't know, I'm down here in South America, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it sounds like it's been pretty much business as usual up in D.C., up in the U.S. Everybody's still chilling, and yeah, things, are going, I, things I think, are going great, right? I think it's been pretty uneventful. I haven't even seen a single person outside, so it must mean that no- nothing's going on. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, we're we're back in the wake of the uh, Capitol building insurrection, attempted coup, whatever you want to call it. Um, to own the libs as much as you can, uh, you should do that because there's no such thing as anti-fascist praxis. Um, just kidding. <laughs> but we're we're back, and we you know before we get into the episode, we wanted to just you know reflect on the responses and how crazy some of them have been. There hasn't been great. <laughs> it hasn't been great. I've I've never seen seen so many people be so wrong. Well, I've seen a lot of those particular people be wrong before. They just continued being wrong in a worse way. <laughs> and there, there were there were yeah. some unexpected ones. Yeah, my favorite of those is is Richard Wolf just like accidentally backed up his truck into red brownism. Um, Shat the bed, bloody stool. You know, you're trying to parallel park, and you think it's a you think it's a it's a spot, but actually it's a bunch of fascists, and you're like, this is <laughs> oh, this is the working class. Yeah, <laughs> happens to the best of us. Um, then there were some of the usual suspects, like you know, the host of Antifada saying that. Uh, unions can't get rid of Nazis because they're working class. Yeah, MMT is a cult, but there's there's no outside of your specific union. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, of course, there was a sprinkling of Jacobin articles because you know when when nature calls, um, Jacobin <laughs> answers. Um, they bring in and... all their their best and their brightest. We have a reading from, it was co-authored by the best and the brightest. So we can, <laughs> we can do that. Uh, yeah, but first, what's the wolf tweet? Oh, the wolf tweet, I'm just going to paraphrase it. I mean, we did enough. It's basically that, like, the Capitol Hill insurrection. He wrote it weirdly, too. Like, the January, there's some, like, he backed into it with, like, official pros and then he just ended up being like because he's just like a nice uncle that's all he knows yeah, he's how to a nice do. uncle who calls who, nazis working class who shat um, the bed with red brown yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and we're gonna get to the reading i guess i just one thing i wanted to say like you know i think it's obvious we take fascism seriously on this podcast if you ever listened before and like our, our whole project sort of predicated on countering and resisting the logics of of zero-sum uh, scarcity logics, which we would code as the right wing, which, you know, we'll talk about uh, the the, T, the TNR article in a little bit. But um, the, you know, I think I want to say that this is like an important moment that we've that we've just lived through and witnessed and it's ongoing and and it is going to change the way I think politics function in America, at least in ways that are still unpredictable, but 
But ultimately, I think we're going to come back to the same sort of praxis that we've been building here this whole time, which is resist zero-sum logics wherever they crop up, right? Because they lead to this sort of violence exclusion. And that's the only that's the only way to to manifest them as a political matter. And and the right is always going to have the upper hand, um, as we've said over and over again. Yep. So can't exclude um, the far right. Yeah, can't, can't out exclude, exclude the far, the far right. right. <laughs> yeah, you can exclude. You can exclude. You them, should you exclude, exclude the far, the far, right. far yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's been a while since we've read Jacobin on this podcast, like really read Jacobin. And we're not going to do that. We're going to read one quote and talk about it. But um, yeah, well, that's how we re- that's how. Okay, yeah, that's that's, that's when we do a real reading. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the only way to read Jacobin. Um, <laughs> so what what's the article up for, for today? So this one, it was by Raphael Kashatorian and Stephen Marr. And uh, the title is The Washington Riot Was a Defeat for the Far Right, Not a Triumph. Um, which, just to quote Dan Berger from Twitter, storming the Capitol building and almost executing like fucking half of Congress is definitely not what I think of when I think of like a weak far right political movement. (laughs) Um, But let's dig into why they think that this signals that the far right is weak. The premise of this argument, uh, which I think is just summed up in this uh, section that I want to read, which is um, the riot and its quick repudiation by the political and economic elite made plain that there is currently little base in the state or among big capital for a Trumpist coup, despite the apparent and unnerving participation of police and security forces. So, right, like... <laughs> it constructs itself, really. It, it does. Um, it does. But nevertheless, I want to commentate on it deconstructing itself, um, which is, right, police and security forces are here bracketed from whether or not this coup has a chance at succeeding. Why? Because it ultimately turns on whether there is support among economic elites, for the coup, right? Among big capital. Big capital. <laughs> and I mean, this is, you know, this is a kind of a mirror image of another one of kind of Jacobin's greatest hits of being pessimistic about what chances the left has for taking power, which is this figure of capital flight, right? Which I think is what's being implied here is that... And then the eagle crashes. <laughs> right, right. Failure is an option, <laughs> to to quote the, the cover art of one of the recent Jacobin images, where the, the eagle is just lying dead on the, on the ground. Um, <laughs> you need capital, because capital is autonomous from the state, and, you know, capital... If you take over the government, capital can leave, and then you literally can't, society can't go on. Well, as Matt Chrisman literally compares, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's, like, cult temple of, like, pedophilia to the capital. And, I mean, I guess they're both just elite capitalist spectacle. I don't even know, but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, ass. right. But it's it's this it's this reification of capital as an object, right? That that then becomes reifying people's private property claims in the absence of direct job creation by the state as being 
this island that's outside of, you know, national jurisdictions and it's just global capital that's flying everywhere and it's, you know, nobody can can pin it down because it, it keeps cheating the tax system, you know, and like... What I love, there's something I have to point out, which I love so much about this. Um, and it sort of betrays itself in another way too. It's like, not just capital, like there's no support among capital for this. It's big capital. <laughs> like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> like, what, like, cause, cause I think what the point is, is like literally, I think the reason why they find themselves having to say big capital is because <laughs> the, the right wingers own capital <laughs> right because jacobin is capital right, right. <laughs> like, and, like, and like so there's this like delineation it's like yeah yeah no like big capital is not <laughs> right but but it's little capital it's like the, yeah the... the ceos of coca-cola and pepsi yeah, have agreed so to <laughs> it's like there's this like funny game like word games being because they can't say that capital did <laughs> enact this insurrection in any mm-hmm. sense even though like it did they have to say no no it's like jeff bezos didn't say we should have an insurrection or mark zuckerberg didn't therefore there won't be one i just i just and therefore so exactly therefore this is a joke and, and and they have this theory of change which is sort of not necessarily the authors of this article but some of the school has this theory of change that you know we can't call things too much of a threat or too fascist because that's sort of actually anti-left because that's overselling the threat in a way where centrists will feel they have a right to use that danger to stay in the center. I'm like, okay, but if you want to win centrists over to the left, how does it make sense to like pretend the right wing is not a real threat, that they're just a bunch of like jokers? Are you kidding me? Clearly they are some kind of threat. Like, what are you thinking? Like, I don't even understand. And the elites are in the center, of course, right? The capitalist elites are the centrists. And- Be- because it was the Capitol building and not like, you know, the-, the building in Wall Street where all the gold is, you know, right? Like, <laughs> for that reason, it was a spectacle, right? right. Because capital is still in control. Which, you know, right. if you've taken state power and you're a Nazi and you're a fascist or you're a neo-Confederate and... You want to mobilize this entire, on exclusionary terms, mobilize Das Volk, right? Or this imagined rooted population that is, you know, blood and soil, right? Like, all you need is is law and state power to do that, right? Capital is not gonna, like, that's that's what a coup means. And just to be clear before we move on, like, the argument is that fascism has been manifesting in this country since its inception, right? Like, and and before that too, in, in different ways, in analogical ways, in logical structures of exclusion and genocidal domination and and othering and, and all of these structures, right? That we've committed multiple genocides on the terms of, whether they're in East Asia or among indigenous people in in the the land of the United States and however you want to structure, right? African-Americans, there's so many different ways in which we've done this over and over again. And so to, to, to differentiate them in order to say one is not a problem, in order to say that we actually need to be fighting capital, <laughs> which leads to defending Nazis. I mean, th- this is, this is, it's just, 
it's so symptomatic in every way. And it's something, I mean, we, we've spelled out on this podcast before, but I think it's, it was just important to say. So I think now might be a good time for us to move on to a news item that I think was maybe less big for the country, but was certainly big for us which is that Alex Yablon, uh, who writes for The New Republic and elsewhere, uh, had an article where he profiled uh, us as well as Nathan Tankus, who does not need the press as much as us, but shout out to Nathan Tankus, in an article for The New Republic called This Year's Underground Sensation, Modern Monetary Theory. It was interesting. I mean, you know, I I don't want to just reread an article about ourselves, but I, I think that something that was kind of interesting going through the reactions of it that um, I would love to first get Max's opinion on uh, was a quote from Max at the end, where Max said, if you're thinking on zero-sum terms, you're not going to out-exclude the right. They want it. They don't have any moral anxiety about exclusion. As a mental health matter, I found MMT to be very therapeutic. It doesn't take that easy path to self-loathing, assuming everything is always going to be horrible suffering. Everything isn't always going to be horrible suffering. So we can look at the suffering that is existing and be outraged by it. And a reaction that I noticed was a lot of people focused in on the phrase mental health, right, and therapeutic. And they, you know, were like, MMT is a cult, except dialed up all the way because now we're literally talking about Therapy and self-care. Not not going to do much <laughs> to destroy capitalism. You're just going to get a $500 an hour shrink and talk about noise, as Fran Leibovitz said in my Netflix viewing last night. Instead of Netflix, I was watching real people last night outside <laughs> from my car. Uh, oh, wait, never mind. Um, anyway, uh, Max. We have something um, called a curfew here, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. We definitely do here, too, in DC. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I was told yeah. not to disclose that we have an in-house shrink at the Modern Money Network. Um, <laughs> but... But bypassing that, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, I think, to take, I mean, the first half of the quote, obviously, what with what we just discussed, like, you're not going to out-exclude the right. I mean, you know, they're, they're doing a good job of demonstrating that I think that's the case. Um, <laughs> but moving to, like, yeah, this question of, like, mental health and, and you know, I mean... I think it comes down to, at least for me, the the sort of what's the basis of the critique of our name of this podcast, which is like base superstructure, right? Mental health is superstructure. Um, and, and so, I mean, you know, there's that first step where we can, you know, talk about how silly it is to, 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 to bracket mental health as if it wasn't related to the political economic structures that, and mediations that we all live amidst and under. Right. Um, or or to make your mental state purely instrumental towards the working class kind of pulling itself up by its bootstraps against capital. Well, right. right. Because, because that's that's the critique. It's not that like I because I I think that they would say, you know, we need to, you know, we need to stop this kind of therapeutic stuff because that's demobilizing, right? But they would, but they're they're still speaking in the tense of mental health. They're just saying you need to do whatever it takes to just like push those feelings down and like you know because this is not a game. 
Well, well, you're, well, right, you're, you're, well, there's like a scarcity view, which is like, you know, Anna Kachayan tweeted about this, where she was like, you know, you, everybody like, like, nobody really likes to serve other people. And you're like having to hire somebody for things you need if you have feelings, like, so it's better to keep them down, like you're more independent and more ethical. Well, well, that's precisely, I mean, that's precisely the zero sum thinking that, that we're not going to out exclude the right on those terms, right? Like if, if you think that you are going to be able to shove and repress those feelings down more than a fascist who is just <laughs> operating off of pure repression, um, like, no, obviously not. And, and I think this speaks to a, you know, there's obviously that sort of like logical structure of zero sum that I think is, is certainly there, right? Like any coping that you do is... In its nature, taking away from anger on behalf of the working class or anger at yeah. capital. As if, like, those types of comments were not actually... As if that were helping people get involved to move to uh, creating a policy structure where, where the state is in, and communities are employing therapists and social workers to uh, help people at affordable prices or free, you know, through their health care this type of uh, mental health support they need. But no, it's like, oh, you're selfish just by wanting to care and you're fooling yourself. It's this self, not just demobilizing, but even self-pleasuring. Like you have sinned because you've told yourself that it's okay to want to comfort yourself and your friends and think that matters politically. That's indulgent and embarrassing, you know? Exactly. And as you said before this conversation to us, Natty, uh, like organizers know that you can't, organize you can't you can't be for others unless you are also at the same time um being for yourself and that's not a contradictory enterprise right and that's just at the level of self-care which i actually am not sure that that's exactly what i was talking about but i think we can we can like keep keep dilating from there excuse um, my my typical adhd <laughs> that's not what i meant but good but, point <laughs> well it's i think what what max is saying is that mmt changes what your assessment of what is possible and that is going to open up possibilities and like the idea that that is demobilizing to people rather than a prerequisite for mobilizing people right like What's demobilizing is is saying this is a struggle. This is, you know, there's no joy unless you're the Joker, you know, like it's completely it's just it stifles everything except the most asocial expressions of pain, basically. I was, yeah, I mean, right. It, that's exactly it. And I think this speaks to a broader sort of one could call it a dialectical schematic on the oh, left. Oh no, I thought you were against those. Uh, oh, I am. Yeah, <laughs> oh. that's exactly the point. Oh. Um, where, whereby, <laughs> right, in this sort of zero-sum contradictory vision, there's an ultimate end, right, in, in this, sort of, this sort of dialectical vision, which is capital. Daddy. Gets negated by a working class consciousness that is mobilized. Other daddy. Right. And so yeah. we have this conflict the, of daddies. The petite daddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you forgot the, it's petite, petite daddy, but you know, it's <laughs> but, um, Yeah. <laughs> but, and so what I think part of our schema and our sort of rejection of 
dialectical sort of zero-sum contradiction on this podcast is, is, is how we see MMT reframing the struggle for political, economic, social, human, non-human justice is along the terms of opening up possibilities for the exertion of radical agency that aren't reducible to this zero-sum struggle of wills against capital, which we would redefine, by a working class, which, again, there's a definitional problem on both ends. And so what MMT does, and reason why one could call it a coping mechanism in in a really capacious sense, is it actually foregrounds that there is no total emancipation from money in this sort of free associative, autonomous, sort of emancipated Eden, Edenic communism at the end of struggle, nor is there, nor have we fallen from one of those, right? Nor is there some sort of pre-social imminent ground that we have lost with money. And but rather that money is this sort of ongoing maintenance process by, by which we we transform and continually transform the political economic structures which we live under, which are currently very exploitative and horrible. Well, we'll get to this, but um, it's important also to just flag early, right? Like early and often, money is not reducible to the nation state. Right. Right. Like this is, you know, it's much um, messier than that. And that's in fact why it's ongoing, right? And why it's, you know, always there as an expression of a problematic of interdependence that's always there. Right. And so and so care as a sort of political structure means that like you could call it being or like oh, no. the act of repro- being, social reproduction being, being and nothing. Two of my favorite things. <laughs> um don't make me sing all of my favorite things again on this podcast. <laughs> um but but the act of our social reproduction is like it's maintenance. It's coping. Like we're right. we're coping with our existence. And that that's like the problem of existence. This brings up media practice, which is like people say, like kind of our interview with Chrisman, where it's like, he kind of feels like, well, I'm a mere entertainer. And it's like almost again, embarrassing to think like it matters just because like you can't set the entire political landscape behind your show doesn't mean that like, as we've talked about with the Green New Deal, that, you know, you would want to have Green New Deal uh, press positions and making podcasts that are, entertaining and informative is a part of community carrot, however small a level, a small level of agency. And I think that was part of what was interesting about the article for me was kind of the way like being a stoners is prefigured because I think this like leaning into political practice as informing and educating can be playful, can be pleasurable, right? And have vulnerability and incompleteness where you don't know it all yet, but you're opening up conversations, right? And yeah, but you're still participating. Yeah. Because right? people read the fact that we don't all know everything that each other knows and that it's collaborative as we're being like purely acted upon. We're or- lackeys. We're lackeys for the, the one sovereign member of the, the collective, yeah, Scott Ferguson, which right. if you've ever met him is a funny image. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> um, an- another thing that um, that I really wanted us to focus on about this figure of therapy as 
you know, doing drugs at night in like the most kind of pejorative way that just totally strips it of of its agency and participation in the world and it and the role that it plays in radicalizing people having your drugs at night but also <laughs> having um having your sense of what's possible opened up but like i also just want to defamiliarize this this kind of binary between you know you're either doing self care that's bullshit or you're working for you know the movement or something by also pointing out that like this reaction this kind of balking at the word therapy is itself also self-care for for people, you know? And I think that we should read it really kind of symptomatically, right? Because, you know, as, as I said earlier, right, like it is counterintuitive to just insist that opening people's horizons of what they think is possible is demobilizing, right? Like that doesn't make sense. But on the other hand, right, like there's a safety in in that for people that I think, you know, it's like this image of a struggle, right, that is so kind of hardened and real politic and bleak and pessimistic. There's comfort in saying to somebody, no, you can't do that, even though that's counterintuitive. You know, I think that 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 figure of the struggle is like a comfort object for people that they really don't want to give up because it's Without that, right, without that formula of working class will act for itself as a united collective will against capital, without that image, right, like, where do I fit into this? Or without an easy answer of what should everybody be identically doing, right? What should everybody as rank and file be identically doing, Oh shit! I'm falling. Like I, I, I've lost my grounding. Um, and and I think that that motivates a lot of the very knee jerk reactions that people have had to what we're doing. And to be clear, we're not. To be really clear, we're not against class struggle. Is like even the article might say, like where people counterpose class struggle to MMT and precisely the uh, therapeutic clarity of even the smallest scale uh, engagement with this education. Uh, project about MMT is like clarity about what is what is theoretically possible, which is that we could, you know, if the horizon of the left in whatever form for taking power would be that we would want to create a society where we could care for each other, where we could have jobs as entertaining people at a small scale or doing therapy at a small scale or creating parks at a small scale, that there is enough space for everyone and that we could design society where we didn't have to separate these things into binaries of work and play and uh, care and not care, capital, not capital. Like there's a different intermingling of forces and conceptions available. Yeah. And, and this this is why I, I don't I don't think of it as an antagonism between MMT and Marxism in the first no. place. And that's not to say, right, that I think that they're wholly like compatible, but the idea of an antagonism where we just are rejecting class struggle and we're rejecting labor organizing and we're, re and we're rejecting all of these things, people read that into the fact that we want to talk about other things too. Yeah. And policy is class struggle. Like trying to create a Green New Deal and job guarantee is class struggle. That's why it was part of like the civil rights movement for a job. It is class struggle. Like it's not class struggle to say we should have sound finance socialism. That's not class struggle. But it's not class struggle because at the point of production, 
which is what right and that's the distinction that but it is well well of course it is but i'm i'm <laughs> i'm playing into the what the what right. the imagination is right because because that's epiphenomenon right. over there right. right like for in right. the in this vision of situating in that sense that that we're trying to destabilize right and literally i think destabilize is important here because like will said it, it there's this sort of feeling of the ground coming coming out from under and 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 a knee jerk reaction to to suggest that we are versus marxism right there's this sort of antagonistic pose that's being created in this dialectical sense where now we have to fight to the death and then synthesize right um but but the whole point is is to reframe what struggle is right and to and to re- and to open up like again coming back to the sense of possibility over and over again which i think you know i think what we want to do in this episode then you know we're going to keep deferring the episode i was just reading derrida so that's where my <laughs> my mind is um but um we're, but what we want to do in this episode is to demonstrate that this sort of utilization of class struggle or of the working class rising up by its bootstraps in and for itself to take down capital right i mean this came up in in our christmas interview and our besner interview it's it's come up recently with talks of like you can't alienate the nazis because they might some of them might be working class um there there is right there's a there's a real sense yeah there's a real sense that we are we are taking away something that is really like an important cope that is not reflexive for people who are trying to make it in this sort of exploitative world that we live in um, as an analytical matter. And I think we want to reflect on that in an analytical sense, right? From our vision, from our our like non-zero sum terms, what it could mean to actually destabilize that structure. Right, that that familiar structure, right, which we want to defamiliarize by showing that it's different than people thought that it was. Um, and just to spell out this point about law is the point of production, right? That's the defamiliarization that we're doing. Just to spell out what we mean by that, right? Like what's meant by the means of production is that whoever owns these resources has the ability to invest in new production. So they kind of hold the cards. But the point, right, is that one, these are property rights, right? So they're already legally defined and constituted. But the bigger point, and I think the more important point than that, is that because the public can employ people directly without even going through capitalists and without even making profit on the other end of it. What that means is that the power to decide what counts as a resource in the first place and in doing so, right, decide like what are the means of production, right? Like if if we have a big theater program, suddenly we have a bunch of new means of production that are, you know, Props (laughs) Props <laughs> and a stage, right? And like, you know, all all of the things that it takes in order to do those things. So we push back against the reification, the naturalization of Amazon as the only means of production, right? So that whoever has Amazon, which again is a legal claim, right? But Whoever has the, you know, the Amazon truck fleet or something has the ability to sort of give the thumbs up or thumbs down on whether or not society can go on. 
Um, and that's that's what we want to push back against because you know we don't need Google to be nationalized necessarily. We need to we need it to not exist, right? Like we don't just need to switch the owners of shitty infrastructure that was built by capitalists for capitalists. We need new infrastructure. Right. That's that doesn't have this. You know, it's not like we're going to melt down all of the yachts and turn them into universal health care. It's like, no, we just stop building yachts and we you know, or fucking don't stop building yachts. Give everybody their luxury communism or whatever. But like, you know, the point is that we don't need to go through this reified idea of means of production that is the slippage between Jeff Bezos and his property claim and the trucks and the building and all of these things, which are all thoroughly legally defined and mediated in the first place. So when we say that the means of production is law, that's what we mean. Right. And power is involved in struggling for the law. That's a class and power struggle. I mean, that's the struggle. I mean, I, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it, would, it would take a redefinition of class, I think, to, to make it a purely class struggle. But it doesn't mean that struggle is not important. It's right. It's about where, where, what agency are you struggling for? Um, what levers, right? And, and, and where are they distributed? And how can they be remediated? And these are the questions. And so I think um, we wanted to move from here to actually thinking kind of critically about what it means to defamiliarize that ground as a psychoanalytic matter. Well, well, Will, Will had an interesting and, and not at all controversial idea of uh, thinking about this kind of sense of falling or needing a sense of ground as being the kind of symptomology that leads to these sort of state apparatus carceral logics. And he wanted to kind of play with using the uh, analogy of some of the work of Laura Mulvey, who we don't want to adopt uh, full sale, but kind of use some of it to complicate the idea of the symptomology of state violence in the first place. And her idea of this sort of reified, naturalized, absolute subject of the male gaze. Uh, it's important to say, first of all, right, like Laura Mulvey is a film theorist. Uh, she's probably most known for this 1975 essay that she wrote on the male gaze as a cinematic structure, basically. And and as um, and as something to symptomatically read patriarchal film forms and kind of diagnose what they do. So Mulvey's argument, basically, and then I'm going to kind of use the shape of the argument, um, acknowledging also that it's been complicated by a lot of people, even just on its own terms, like, you know, Bell Hooks, Judith Butler, um, you know, she was writing in 1975 and she's a white feminist. And I think that that is enough said. How dare you, William? <laughs> are, you in, are you insulting white women? <laughs> Hashtag J Sweet Karen. Um, but <laughs> so, now I think it is important to think about these complications. Uh, there's definitely scholars who've written about Mulvian ways where they want to sort of reclaim women's agency to an extent. Perhaps they're worried about the sense that all cinema will be uh, posed as woman is just this victim and this camera is this phallus staring her down. And I also think we want to obviously be delicate to the history of transgender theory and such. 
Some of the things that really stood out to me were about things such as the glance, where you have instead of this hard staring, that there's ways of looking that are this fast look, oscillations of desiring physicians. Yeah, so like her argument about patriarchy is that it is anxiously structured and anxiously organized around this figure of the female or the woman as a purely inactive, like, negative lack, right? Um, So already there's a male subject that is, that acts, and that subject's, you know, sovereignty to act, right? It's free will um, is dependent on this figure of the female or really what is just the everything that's not the male right the object right we can think of like you know how we talk about mother nature right like man using resources you know man in nature um you know and marx talks about you know the virgin soil there's all kinds of ways that we can use this to talk about this kind of modern subject-object relations in general, because these are all very colonial, they're all very patriarchal, they're all, you know, fucking European modernity evil, right? Um, but basically, so the the male gaze is anxiously structured around this imagination of the figure of the woman as this inactive lack that gives the male figure his feeling of agency, right, of freedom, of of having a will that is not constrained. Um, and this is important because modernity imagines us all as individuated wills who have to compromise with the world in order to negotiate through like a social contract and kind of all of these things. But the point is precisely that this is not true, right? So Mulvey does not just say, oh, yes, Freud is right. And, you know, the female figure is totally negative or whatever. The point is that that's not the case. And that's the source of the anxiety. Because the male gaze constantly requires the object, what it has figured as the negative object, to be disciplined and to be punished. Ooh, fun. <laughs> um, and, and, so this, and so this then becomes, you know, she's a film theorist, right? And this becomes how she reads the role of the camera and of the filmmaker, right? You have this kind of spectatorial gaze is constructed with the camera where the woman who is filmed is sort of fetishized and in that way is totally mastered, right? Like if you fetishize something, it is solely defined by what you imagine it to be, right? It doesn't have an agency of its own at all. Um, Or at the level of narrative, right? Like you have like the femme fatale who has agency, but then is punished by the narrative for having agency. So the femme fatale character superstructure (laughs) starts sort of acting like a man, according to these patriarchal logics. And then it's revealed, you know, that, oh, she was just a succubus. Right. And sort of the allegory is that this is deception and that really her agency is her you know, kind of leeching off of the male character or something like that. But so basically it's it's the failure of the male gaze as a structure to do what's required of it, right? That she takes as the launching point for her symptomatic reading of like, why is classical Hollywood putting up these female figures only to kind of punish them over and over again, you know? And she's she's reading this as like, well, 
they're doing it in kind of a compulsive way subconsciously because in order for patriarchy to work on its own terms it it has to do that right and so it's it's insatiably driven towards sadism and violence and punishment right and on this podcast we've talked in a lot of different registers about this sort of modern western imagination of a self-standing subject that is in nature, right? Or, you know, all, all of these things that that kind of become the basis for just the Western enlightenment. Um, so like our issue with that is precisely that we're always participating because we're always interdependent. And so the male gaze or, you know, the modern gaze, right? The modern subject reads interdependence as an infringement upon its own sovereignty, basically, right? Because it has no way of conceptualizing being entangled in relations of care and interdependence, except as someone did this to me, right? Like I'm in a system. The fact that I am dependent upon other people for caretaking at at all of these different micro and imminent and then abstract and kind of macro scales that gets read in such a way that then what happens, right? Like you end up with this idea of sovereignty and ultimately of the social contract, which tries to use this figure of the nation state to create a kind of a collective self-standing subject who's defined by sovereignty. And this is really important for thinking about MMT and state theory and our intervention into MMT and state theory as as a current discourse, which is like we want to problematize this idea of sovereignty, because I think that it's a problem to talk only in terms of monetary sovereignty or to just appeal narrowly to the nation state as being the source of money, right? Because on our reading, the nation state itself is a node of governance within a broader system of interdependence, like the male subject um, in this kind of patriarchal imagination who reads his participation in the world as, oh my God, I'm under siege. I need to discipline the object relentlessly. So what we could say is that, you know, in Mulvey's schema, the male subject is not reflexive and not self-aware about the fact that it's a participant. It wants to just be a sovereign. And that's and that's sort of like the state too, right? And that's and that's why we we don't want to participate in reifying and naturalizing this image of the state as sovereign. We want to say no, the state is participating as though it's sovereign and is being this rogue actor, and it needs to be accountable to what's outside of it, right? Because because the sovereign gaze, if you could call it that, cannot exhaust its object, right? And But its efforts to come out, you know, symptomatically in, in sadism and violence, right? As trying to tame and erase and kill and destroy and incarcerate all other participation because that is read through the logic of sovereignty as an abridgment on the state, right? So we want to resituate money and state institutions and state monetary institutions within an interdependence that, yes, the state participates in, but you can't take the state at its word for what its role is in it. 
because what the state thinks its role is in it is fucking man in nature, <laughs> right? The state thinks that it is this kind of self-standing will. Phallus. Yeah, phallus, right, exactly. And the point is precisely that it's not, and so the readings that are complicating Mulvey are exactly right, that it's not just like there's a phallus and a lack. That's problematic uh, gender theory, right? And that's problematic subject-object theory, and it's bad film theory sometimes, too, because precise, not because she's wrong, about the symptomatic reading, but the point is there are other ways of participating in the glance and being this desiring uh, spectator and those things I mentioned before. Right. Bell Hooks theorizes an oppositional gaze that you could read as, you know, I guess I would read it as analogical to Mulvey. Um, I think that she's critiquing Mulvey. I want to kind of Put that to one side because I'm not even saying something that Mulvey or Bell Hooks has said. So I, I think that, you know, we can we can let the the differences and But I think it's important because it helps I help I think that helps like the state theory reading though, because that's precisely the point. Precisely what you have to complicate about Mulvey is what you have to complicate about the state and sovereignty. But also about Bell Hooks. Also, yeah. So I love what I love about this too then is it can actually get us back to where we started this conversation, which is with the reaction to us, Yep. right? As as a podcast, as left MMTers. And, you know, there's a tweet that, you know, I, I will I will say, but I'm not going to say who tweeted it. Um, but during the, the period in which the Marxist left sort of, they let off some steam, and owned us over and over again for about three weeks. Mm-hmm. They disciplined us. They. That's right. Well, exactly. That's exactly the point, right? Like, we caused anxiety that was disciplined. And there was a tweet that was by someone with, you know, a few thousand followers, you know, academic, um, who was basically subtweeting us and saying, imagine not being a Marxist, was, was the quote. And what I think is really interesting about this is... What's inflected in this tweet is the this the sense of what did the what the horizon of possibility on the left is. Right? And the left is Marxist. This is a this is a, a definitional claim that's being sort of inserted in here, right? That that to be on the left means to be Marxist. And um so there's a there's a totalization in that structure, right? There's a sovereign logic, right? You have to you have to be imminent to this structure if you consider yourself legitimate within the left, right? And and of course that's not true and of course anyone sophisticated would know that that's not true. However, the logical structure played itself out in a lot of the hate I think that we received which was you know, people are used to being like cr- people critiquing Marx or critiquing aspects of Marxism, which is not to say that we critique Marxism as a movement, right? Um, there are certain actions that perhaps we'd critique. Uh, I'm not a Leninist, for example, but the analytic itself of Marxism as a sort of philosophical or or structure for thinking about the world is precisely being in that tweet posited as the sovereign in this logic so then it's no wonder that if there's a destabilization right there's an anxiety that's introduced in this sort of interdependence well okay we are on the left 
and we share, we participate in this left project. We're not the left, right? We, we make no preoccupation to be. We, we have a voice and we participate in this sort of left project that this introduced an anxiety that needed to be disciplined. And I think that's what occurred. And so this sense of imagine, imagine not being a Marxist is precisely the disciplinary structure of a sovereign attempting to shore itself up and shore its anxiety up over its non-mastery, over its objects. And so that's, I think that's another way of reading this logical structure whereby we can think about coping as precisely sitting within the anxiety of interdependence. Right? And that's where we then lead back to the beginning why I said MMT offers a new possibility for thinking about the world that I think I found therapeutic, right? Abolition democracy that doesn't, that precisely like back to the, our latest thing too, that doesn't depend on the outside that is put in prison, right? But instead right. that includes product in a caring way. Yep. And so we are imagining what it would mean to be on the left and not totalizingly a Marxist. And that is precisely what this project is doing. And it's interesting just as a, you know, as at a human level, witnessing and being, you know, the object for anxieties around what that reimagining process can actually, you know, entail. Where we don't have to just have this fixation on not falling, where we can sit with the anxiety of falling and try to collectively work together. Yeah. And, you know, we we had another um, friend of ours suggest, as all of this was sort of playing out, you know, suggest that, you know, it's not even so much what our intervention is, so much as it is is marxism as a signifier that that gives people comfort right um and i think that that's really really interesting too this idea that the signifier itself um is the comfort object which of course when you think about it sounds extremely marxist <laughs> right <laughs> um is you know it's like that's what commodity fetishism that's you know all of those things um and and you know i i have issues with those framings precisely because they're not and not reflexive enough yeah they're not reflexive because they think that the object is totalizing right that i need well now now marxism is my signifier so i need that um you know in the same way that right like now we've fetishized the commodity so the only way out is through the commodity and that's imminent that's imminence i mean that's what imminent critique is and that's an imminent critique of political economy on marxian terms i mean there's no there's no getting around that if within that schema and so that's why we the pulling back of possibility and not totalizing univocity and introducing sort of this messy mezzo analogical structure does provide a way that can make these logics answerable to our agency. And that is, you know, what we're about and what what a, a real anti-state project looks like. Because it's not enough, like, you know, to, to, to paraphrase, right? It's not enough to reestablish a dictatorship of the proletariat because you're just going to reproduce state logics. And I think we've seen this with some autonomous zones in, in certain parts of the, you know, of, of the country. And, and especially during, you know, I, the Seattle one, for example, when they started, you know, the, the, the logics of sovereignty started to reassert themselves 
because they weren't challenged at the root. But again, that's that's a that's a complicated question, and I don't mean to totalizingly reject that sort of structure. I think we can um, maybe give a little bit of an illustration to what this looks like at the level of how do you talk about quote unquote state institutions in a way that does not reify sovereignty and does not reify the nation state, right? Should be easy. (laughs) (laughs) Should be so easy. Um, How do people who consider themselves leftists, right? Like, how do we interface with them? Because I, I think that a lot of a lot of the kind of discourse about that and this kind of anxiety about not wanting to reproduce sovereignty is this. So are we talking about an inside logic or an outside logic, right? Are we talking about reform or are we talking about revolution? And what we're saying is kind of, you know, we want to scramble this and say, well, neither is actually fully possible, (laughs) right? Um, And, we we want to sit within our interfacing with these state entities, both on their terms and on terms that they wouldn't admit. We've talked about the uni proposal before on the podcast, but I don't think that we've quite set it up this way. And I would love to hear Max's, uh, well, first just, you know, refresh people on what it is, but then um, reflect on how it relates to what we've been talking about. Yeah, so, I mean, the uni project, like all good political, economic, and metaphysical projects arose from a tweet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Which about, then became uh, fetishized. And that's now right. We're, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, then, you know, a, a couple of us at the Money on the Left sort of thought collective, um, Scott Ferguson, William Sass, myself, and Benjamin Wilson, who's sort of adjacent and a, and a, and a friend and economist, um, we started working on and, and like thinking with what it would mean for universities to mobilize their sort of what one could call like agency in the production process, right? Whether it's housing agency or employing agency or nutritional or food sustainability agency to sort of start cultivating a sort of complementary local currency structure that would have a sort of productive fiscal circuit of its own that necessarily would interface with local fiscal circuits and municipal property taxes and even, you know, potentially the Fed swap lines or Fed balance sheets and these sorts of questions. And so this is largely in response to what is an ongoing like university budgetary crisis and, and ongoing austerity that it hasn't ceased as it only accelerated um, since the coronavirus crisis. And, um, but I think what we, what this does in this circ- in, from the perspective of subject object relations in this sort of sovereign, sovereign versus nature binary and, and flawed binary is it, is it introduces a mezzo in between mediating level where there's agency, right? So if universities can issue currency that interfaces with the state that is analogous to state institutions. Universities are kind of state institutions, but also kind of not. Then there's agency at this meso level. And, you know, I mean, one way to think about this too is like, we also have banks, right? And banks do this. Um, and, and they issue, they create money and they're chartered to create money at this meso level. And so this is already an ongoing process, but it's one that's unaccountable. And so the point being is that one would want this sort of 
these other sorts of public mesostructures in nodes of production and employment that are substantial. For example, the University of California in California uh, is the biggest employer and the biggest landlord. So this is an, a crucial staple of our production system and the, the means of our of production and reproduction in the state of California. And I think universities across the country fit this mold. Um, and so we wanted to think with this space and we've, we've done a bunch of writing that you know, you can find, um, and it's still ongoing. Um, there's more writing to be done and I can't share that yet, but that's exciting. But the point is, is that this represents an MMT inflected, right? A, a, a credit money inflected direct challenge to the logics of sovereignty that a lot of MMTers still rely on. And, right, I mean, you know, the, the top MMTers will still speak of monetary sovereignty. But that is importantly what we are pushing back against. But in so doing, we're not flattening everything to some sort of ground of incoherence, right? Where it's, it's no, sovereignty is not real. Therefore, it's only the state of nature. Um, it's actually something more messy and complicated where agency over monetary issuance is contested. It is analogical, and there are all of these sort of levels, right? These sort of, this, these nests that sit along this sort of triangle or, or cascade of, of different ways in which we create money. What kind of birds are in these nests? Uh, tweets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wo- woodpeckers, actually. Woodpeckers. Um, yeah. <laughs> something really phallic. Um, yeah, because like, just, <laughs> just, just That's a hammer. the oppositional gaze, actually. <laughs> the petite woodpecker. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, like, just to hammer this point home more, right, like, everything is is nested in this kind of messy way. All of these authorities, right, um, or, you know, what I, what I called earlier participants, except that there's this extra messy thing where some of them have this ideology of sovereignty and the nation state and and patriarchy and whiteness and and all of these things that then cause real genocidal symptoms right that that need to be addressed at the root specifically by rejecting sovereignty and the nation state on those terms and putting forth what is existentially scary to the nation state, which is that you don't have complete control. I'm sorry, but you're accountable to the object because the object is other participants. There's an oscillation, uh, uh, no, an oscillation of desiring positions. I'm sorry, I just loved that phrase. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>